We'll turn back today as we begin to the book of Ephesians chapter 5 as we continue our recent series on marriage with a message that focuses on some of the common killers of marriage in our time and what scripture has to say about those behaviors and those patterns. We'll begin by reading the theme verses of our recent series, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And just to remind us, not necessarily to rehash for us, but to remind us, marriage is to parallel the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus. It's one of the first ways, according to this, a mystery from the beginning of time that God depicted for us the relationship that we have with his son. And so marriage is being instituted by God very sacred, but it's also a way that we can learn how we belong to him, the way that we are attached to him, the way he cares for us, and the way that we are to submit to him. And so because of that, it's very important that our marriages look like what God's word would have them to look like. It's very important for our marriages to be biblical. As we read in previous messages in this series, if a wife, for instance, is contentious to her husband, if she does not submit to her husband, if she is contentious, would be the word that we look at today, the word of God is then caused to be what? Blasphemed. The word of God is blasphemed if a wife is not what she ought to be. And certainly, if the wife can cause the word of God to be blasphemed by her behavior in the home, if she is rebellious to God, then the husband Imagine what weight is on his shoulders when, in this institution of marriage, he is to parallel in his relationship with his wife, the Lord Jesus, and his relationship with you. If I am a bad husband, God has called me to be a husband like Christ is to his church. Imagine what that says about the Word of God and even our Savior if we represent him poorly as husbands. And so again, as we begin our message today, we just remind you that marriage depicts the relationship that the Lord Jesus has with his people. We are the body of Christ. He is our great head. He alone is head of the church. This is why we have no man in a position of authority over a region or a denomination. It's why we have always rejected papal authority because the only head of the church is Christ. Husbands, you're the head of your households. Wives, you are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh the way the church is the body of Christ. And so this is a great mystery. It's something that we can chew on and think about and meditate on as we study this subject together. And as we've said, if you are not married, if you are no longer married, you can still learn through studying marriage the way your Savior cares for you, the way he is your leader, the way he is your head, and how you as his bride are to submit to him. And obviously we have a great number with us today who will one day be married. And I want you to remember the things that we've talked about in this series together. We've studied so far, number one, the blessing of marriage and how marriage is a blessing. It isn't a curse. We, as we concluded that message, heard from one young person, a young lady who told her grandfather, after listening to that marriage, she wants to go get married. If you heard that message and you're not yet married and you thought, I want to get married, then I feel like the message was a success. I hope those of us that have been married for some years didn't hear that title and respond to it with any sense of irony. It isn't an ironic thing. It isn't a cynical thing when I talk about the blessing of marriage. It really is a blessing, and it has been a blessing to me for more than two decades. Marriage is a blessing. God created marriage. 
He sanctified marriage. It is the first institution he created in the world. And so that said, in that message, we looked at the importance, the crucial importance of upholding and perpetuating the biblical framework for marriage. In our second message, we looked at the role of the husband in the home as the head of the house, the leader. He's accountable to God for what takes place in his home. In our third message, we looked at the role of the wife, what the Lord expects of the wife in the home, and the importance that she has as the keeper, the guard of her home, the manager of her home, as she guides it, as she manages it. That word guide, remember, it translates from a Greek word that part of that word comes into the English language as the word despot. She is a person who is in authority over her children in the home. As we begin today's message, we give you the title of that, and it's Killers of Marriage. And so today we want to look at things that commonly kill marriages in our time. Just as a word up front, marriage is entered into with too flippant of an attitude in our country today. Because you can start it, and if you don't like it, just end it. You have irreconcilable differences, and and might I just say that any one of us can have irreconcilable differences with any other one of us at any given moment, because we're all sinners. We said that in marriage one. We're all sinners. And so in our relationships, in our homes, you have one sinner married to another sinner who births a bunch of other sinners, and they have to try to get along in the Lord, and it's something that creates much tension and at times division and controversy. That's why one of the things that we focus so often in this series is the importance of love and charity in our homes. Because charity suffers long. We have to be loving if we want to survive. And the silly little remark I've made in every one of these messages is that no one spends $15,000 on a party to celebrate two people coming together to think that it's just something that we can abandon if we're tired of it or it didn't work out for us. And there are reasons that God gives in his word for a marriage to end. God gives reasons in his word for a marriage to end. In some cases, they can depart and remain unmarried. In some cases, they can depart and remarry. God gives reasons for a marriage to end. But in our country, we view it as something that if we don't like it, we can just simply abandon it. And I would also say, in our country, it's something that's viewed in such a way that you need to try it out with training wheels first, so just live together for a year or two, maybe three or four or five, before you finally decide to get married. And I would caution every single young person here in this room that statistically marriages are far more likely to end if the couple lived together before they were married. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife? and they shall be one flesh. What does that convey to us? That the leaving and the cleaving doesn't occur until when? Marriage. And so we shouldn't be, as it were, shacking up prior to being married. It's to be special. You leave your parents' home, and you are together with your wife. Now, when I say leave your parents' home, Isaac, you might remember that Abraham sends a servant to get Isaac a wife. The servant brings that wife back to Isaac, and they move into his mother's tent. So leaving and cleaving sometimes can involve even staying on the same property. Lord knows there were so many times in even American history when you simply built another cabin on mom and dad's land in the old days. But there, even if you live together, is a leaving and cleaving that is to take place when you get married. You leave and you cleave. Furthermore, in a healthy marriage, you have someone to face the struggles of this life with. You will go through trials. There will be disease. There will be death. There will be the loss of jobs. There will be trouble. Paradise is not in this world. Christ did not die on the cross to make us healthy and wealthy in this life. He died on the cross to give us joint heirship with him, conformed to his image in the world to come. And so being married, you have someone to face all of the troubles of life with. Now, just to speak to those of you that are single, because the Word of God, and I think after this series, we're going to talk about being a faithful single disciple. 
But the church provides for you that companionship, and you have with Christ that companionship that a person has with their spouse. I can go through troubles of this life with Rachel, and God knew any and every issue that we would have health-wise and otherwise before we ever came together as a couple. But I've gone through the trials of this life with her. If you are by yourself, if you are widowed, if you are single, you have in the church that group of people, that support to go through the troubles of this life with. One of the greatest problems during the brief COVID era of American history is the wall between one another and Christian fellowship. Now, I read early on in this the words of Martin Luther, and he prayed to God during the plague that he would not ever infect anyone with that. He prayed that it would pass from their land, but he also said, if I get sick doing good to someone, then I get sick doing good to someone. I'm not going to stop doing what I do because of this plague that's entered the land. We are to be that form of companionship and fellowship one to another in the church. If you have no children, there are children here that can look at you as a mother in Israel. You have brothers, you have sisters. Why do you think Scripture uses those familial terms to talk about our fellow disciples? Because you have that relationship here even if you are a person who is single or widowed or divorced. But you have a person to face the troubles of this life with, and we've spoken about that in this series. On the other hand, a broken marriage creates so much pain. In fact, I would say that a broken marriage can create more pain than just about anything that you can face in this world. I approach this subject today with great reverence, and a somber attitude, because this is serious. There's also an act of spiritual or an aspect of spiritual warfare here. What does Scripture say of that wicked one in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5? That he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Marriage being a, divine insp- a divinely instituted structure in the world, an institution that was created by God, is under constant attack and assault by Satan in the world. Satan attacks marriage. Why does Satan attack marriage? Because God instituted marriage. Now, as Satan attacks marriage, we should understand that Of course, he would love to destroy the institution as a whole. But that isn't how Satan usually attacks, is it? He attacks the individual. And so Satan doesn't seek to undermine marriage as an institution, though he would love to, by uprooting the entire institution of marriage. Remember, it's instituted by God, so Satan hates it. He targets it. He makes it something he wants to destroy. He doesn't destroy it by uprooting the institution altogether. He attacks it one marriage at a time, one person at a time. If he can get to one person in the marriage, he's got a 50% chance of destroying it because one person has abandoned it. And as he destroys one marriage at a time, he begins to, well, as we read here, to go about devouring And God calls upon us then to be sober, to be clear-thinking, to be vigilant, to be aware, to be ready, because Satan goes about as a roaring lion attempting to devour and to destroy. This is a spiritual warfare in every one of our lives. It's a warfare in our country today. It has always been a battleground for the wicked one. What was one of the earliest perversions of marriage? might surprise you. Polygamy. You read of, in the Old Testament, men who had multiple, multiple wives. Think about Solomon, the richest, wisest, powerfulest king of Israel. Built the temple of God. How many wives did Solomon have? 700 wives. 700. Polygamy was one of the earliest attacks 
of the wicked one on marriage. They too shall be one flesh, Jesus clarifies in the book of Matthew. Most marital problems, and this is a word up front, begin because of one root, and that root is selfishness. Now, we're going to talk about several different killers of marriage today, but in most of these cases, the problem is selfishness. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but in the world today, we are very, very selfish people. I want what I want, and I want it now. You think about the instant gratification society that we live in. If I'm hungry, I can have it my way. I can whatever restaurant it is that I want to go to. I can pull up and drive through, and they better have what I want in two minutes or less, or I'm going to choose somebody out. May I talk to your manager? We have to have what we want. We have to have it right now. We're very selfish in this country. It's one of the negatives... One of the negatives of our style of society, and the positives outweigh the negatives hand down. But this is one of the negatives of living in this country is that greed is allowed to permeate us and covetousness. The, the American dream was to honor God and live a moral life and to work hard and to have the freedom to make something of yourself. Now it is to accumulate as much junk as you can and go around bragging about it in front of everybody to impress everybody if you have to go into debt for 250 years to pay for it. Selfishness is the root to most of the problems that we experience in marriage. And you'll see how this begins to unfold as we talk about the individual killers of marriage today. Selfish, uh, selfishness manifests itself in many ways. But so many of the problems in marriage are because one person wants what they want more than what is good for the other partner. I want what I want. I want it now. Might I just remind us of the book of Philippians chapter 2, wherein Paul said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He made, of himself, he made himself of no reputation, but took upon himself the form of a servant. This is the Lord Jesus we're talking about here. God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, of the three-in-one God. He had all power, all authority, all wisdom, all truth, all might. If there was ever, as a man, a man that should have had his way in all things at all times, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, he didn't come into the world to boss people around and to be served, though he deserved it. He came into the world and he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but as we read in verse 7 of Philippians 2, made himself of no reputation and he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, despite the fact that, as you see in verse 10, every knee should bow to him in heaven and in earth. And guess what? One day, every knee shall bow to him even the knee of Satan and all of his angels and all of the wicked, every single being in existence will bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. One day. Jesus depicts this so beautifully for us at the communion service that he instituted in Luke 22 and John 13. The disciples begin to argue which one of them is the greatest. And as they stand there, sit there debating over which one of them was to be in charge, you know, even John's and uh, James and John, their mother, comes to Jesus at one point and says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, let one of my sons sit on one side and one of my sons sit on the other side of you. You've got to love mama called daddy sent preachers. But they say, you, you put them here on each side, Lord. And Jesus is like, you don't even know what you're asking. As these disciples sit and argue over which one of them should be accounted the greatest, Jesus, who was the greatest, girded himself with a, tower, a towel, took water, poured it in a basin, and went about and started washing all of their feet in the role of a servant. Selfishness is one of the greatest destroyers and the root of most destruction in a marriage 
because we begin wanting what we want rather than what is good for our spouse or even what makes our spouse happy. We should always have the mind to do unto them as we would have done unto us. And that doesn't mean if I like fast cars, I should buy my wife a new camshaft for her minivan. Now, by the way, that's a great gift for me. I can give you the serial number on it later, but it means that if it makes her happy and it's not sinful, I should want her to engage in that because it's good. And we can glorify God in that. A life of liberty, not a life of oppression. Selfishness. Wanting what I want over what is good for or makes the other person happy and fulfilled. I want to begin looking at these individually, and it's one of those things that I could spend an entire message on every single one of these, and there are so many biblical examples of each of these. But I have a feeling that if we spent the next six weeks, five weeks, talking about common killers of marriage, you and I would come out of this series depressed and alarmed and beaten down, and I don't want this to be a heavy, oppressive series. I want it to be one that's encouraging and invigorating, so we want to spend time talking about them today, and we don't want this to be a two-hour message, so we'll be brief where we can. But the first one of these today is probably the largest problem in marriages today, one of the largest at least, and that is the killer of marriage that is lust, which I have defined as, in this case, desiring someone other than your spouse. Scripture warns in many places about the dangers of lust. You find this in the Proverbs so often, and fathers and mothers, I would encourage you to consider together the book of Proverbs and study the book of Proverbs. Chapter 5 of Proverbs warns against a strange woman, and I think we've already spent a little bit of time talking about that in this series. Proverbs chapter 5 is one that you should go home and read, and because of some of the language in it, we won't read it all, but it's one that fathers read to your children. There are portions of Scripture that, and, and I make no apologies for preaching any portion of Scripture, but there are some that are graphic, and it would be better to talk about them with your little ones at home. I appreciate the way the King James translators were modest in their translation of some parts of Scripture because there are some translations that are outright vulgar because there are adult topics that are discussed in the Word of God. Proverbs chapter 5 warns against the strange woman. The lips of a strange woman drop as a honeycomb. Her mouth is smoother than oil. That means that she is seducing, but her end is bitter as wormwood. Bitter there not having reference to being full of animosity towards someone, as sometimes that word means, but bitter in the sense of the taste. In other words, this is something that tastes terrible. A person thinks that it's going to be good. Look at it, the contrast there. Her words are like a honeycomb. She's very seducing. When you listen to her and when she speaks to you and attempts to win you over, it appears to be sweet. It's something that is appealing, but the end of the matter is bitter as wormwood, which is one of the most bitter, disgusting tastes known to that man at that time. It's a very bitter thing. Sharp as a two-edged sword, cutting, dangerous, destructive. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life, her ways are not movable. Her ways are movable, rather, that thou canst not know them. She's a moving target. You can't figure her out. You might as well just avoid her at all times. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh to her house. Lest thou give thy honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel. Lest strangers be filled with thy wealth, thy labors in the house of a stranger. Now, of course, Solomon writes this to his son, and so he writes it about the strange woman. But young ladies and women who are with us today, I'll tell you that there are strange men in the world that you need to avoid as well, who participate in the very same activity that Solomon is warning against regarding the strange woman. It isn't a gender thing, but you can find this sort of seducing behavior from both men and women, and we ought to be wise and we ought to be on guard. Solomon warns us here. There are people in the world who receive a high from seducing and even destroying 
the lives of others and the marriages of others. There are people in the world who have no honor at all. They do not care that you're married. They do not care that you are engaged. They do not care that you have a significant other. They will do what they do because they're all interested in selfish self-gratification. And sometimes these seducing people make destroying a marriage a form of a trophy that they can hang on their wall. They take pride in it. Why? Because they're carnal. You're thinking, who would do such a thing? But remember the condition of the heart of the natural man or the natural woman. That's all they know. They rejoice in the things that cause us grief. And so we ought to be on guard. There's not a person in this room who does not need to be on guard from that. We all need to be on guard. As far as lust is concerned, it manifests itself in several ways. And I've, I've given them in a ascending way. They begin so many times with the fleeting thought. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. The thought that you have just in a moment and you think, don't think that thought. That isn't a thought that you need to think. But they begin in, in little thoughts in the back of your mind about another person. Jesus addressed that in his preaching when he said that to lust after a woman, if a man lusts after a woman in his mind, he's committed adultery already with her in his heart. And that doesn't mean that he's committed adultery with his body. It doesn't mean that it's just as destructive to a relationship. But it is very much, just as much, adultery in the sight of God according to the law of God. When we're all done with this, one of the subjects that I have that I want to talk about is the sweetness of the gospel of salvation because of how depraved we are and how much every one of us deserves God's wrath even because of the things that we have thought. Now, we're all guilty. That's the thing about Jesus teaching adultery from the perspective of your thoughts rather than your actions. Every one of us is guilty. You say, I haven't done that in years. I haven't had a thought like that since high school or college. And guess what? That makes you guilty. Well, doesn't it go away? Isn't there a statute of limitations with God? Adam lived 900 and something years, and when he died, he was still as guilty of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as he was the day that he did it. There is no statute of limitations with God, and so we are all guilty. But lust manifests itself beginning with some fleeting thoughts, and maybe those develop into some sort of a fantasy. Or they present themselves in the usage of pornography. You say, oh, there you went, don't go there. I preached an entire sermon on this to a group of young people in December of 2012, and that message lives on the Internet. I'd be happy to give you a copy of it. As I was studying for that, I learned that some 86% of people have looked at pornography in the last month. If you think it's not a problem, you haven't studied it. And beyond that, it's linked to things such as human trafficking would make you sick to your stomach. It's one of the greatest problems in America today. It's a silent epidemic, and nobody talks about it because we don't want to go there. We want to be modest. I've had people come to me after, well, no, not to me, but to other people in the church after me preaching on things like this. I really wish he wouldn't talk about that. Kids don't need to hear about that. And I just want to say, if you think kids haven't heard about that, then you might as well just stick your head in the sand, Mrs. Ostrich, because they have. Do they have a tablet? Do they have an iPod? Do they have a computer? Well, yeah, of course everybody has that. Then they've been confronted with it. Let me just warn you dads, if you've got daughters, I guarantee you if your child has an Instagram account or TikTok or Snapchat or Facebook or any other thing, there have been grown men who have approached them with vulgarity. And you and I need to be aware of that and watch it like a hawk. There are predators in the world today. And don't think for a second that we're immune to it. Now, I've seen the statistics, and I know what takes place, and I'll go there because it's my job to go there. Pornography usage is one of the greatest problems, the greatest destroyers of marriages in this country today. They create all sorts of problems. You can research those on your own. I've known marriages to come to an end because of this. And guess what the Word of God would have us to know about it? It's sin. It's destructive. It will destroy your life. 
If you do not mortify it, if you do not kill it, if you do not put it to death, it will destroy you. Either I kill the sin or the sin kills me. Look at it as an enemy. Look at it as the opposing force. You can't shake hands with it. You can't capitulate with it. You can't just ignore it. You kill it or it kills you. Another one is flirtation. You see how these are ascending in their level of involvement and their level of destruction. Flirtation with someone who's not your spouse. Well, it's just a little harmless fun in the workplace. No, it's not. No, you're playing with fire. What happens when you play with fire? You get burned. And lastly, you have just outright adultery. This is something that we as Christians are to put to death. Now, there are several preventions for this that the Word of God gives us, and you've often heard the statement that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and this is so very true. That's not Word of God, but it's true. It's true. An ounce of prevention is better than a a pound of cure. Scripture does talk about how things are easier to prevent than to stop, and how ending a thing when it is a little matter is so much easier to end than a large matter. Imagine if you can put out a little burning ember... And how much easier it is to deal with that than to deal with a forest fire. Some million acres are burning out west right now in various states. How much easier it would have been to deal with that when it was simply a smoldering ember than now that they're dealing with hundreds of thousands of acres burning. You deal with the problems when they're in their seed form. You don't have to fight the infestation of the weed. Number one, as we talk about prevention of lust problems, you want to avoid potentially dangerous situations altogether. They refer to this as the Billy Graham rule, but Billy Graham didn't invent it. He had the rule to never be alone with a woman in a building, in a place, who was not his wife. And people make fun of that. Our vice president has talked about how he holds by that rule because he is a good man, unlike most politicians in Washington, by all indications. And people made fun of that. People in the media made fun of that. People in Hollywood made fun of that. But that is a good thing, to never be alone with someone who is not your spouse of the opposite sex, to not be alone. Now, where do we find that in Scripture? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 says, Flee fornication. Flee fornication. How does that mean that I'm to deal with the temptation to fornicate? I flee it. What does the word flee mean? It means run from it. Do you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? You know, he's sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. They throw him in a pit, then they pull him out and sell him to some Ishmaelite traders, and they take him down into Egypt, and they sell him into slavery, and he's in a house owned by a man named Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife begins to lust after him and to attempt to seduce him. She grabs a hold over and over trying to seduce him, but she grabs a hold of, her, of his jacket, his coat, And he rips himself out of it, and he runs out of the room. And the Bible language in the book of Genesis is, and he got him out. (laughs) And I've always laughed at that. I snicker at it. And it's not funny because of the sin that's taking place, but he got him out. Men and women, you, you might be advised to get you out. Get you out of the situation. If you're never alone with the person of the opposite, then you never have that temptation to face. And if you think for a minute that you are above that, then you are probably the most at danger or at risk. Every one of us. Every one of us. Number two, enjoy intimacy with your own spouse. Now, let me just challenge you here. This might become a two-part series because I've got several more on this list. You know what Proverbs says in chapter 5 after warning against a strange woman? He talks about the destruction that occurs in promiscuity. We have technical medical terms for these today. But your body will be destroyed through promiscuity. That's not new. Solomon goes on in verse 15 of Proverbs chapter 5 to say, Drink waters out of thine own cistern, or your own water container. He's still talking about lust. We're created with the desire... To have children. 
That is an instinctive desire. Sin in our members causes that to derail and we find relief through sin in this world. The Bible commands us to find the satisfaction of that desire through the biblical means of your spouse. Scripture being modest about it says, drink water out of thine own cistern. In other words, go to your own spouse and quench your thirst. That's the Bible. Don't get mad at me for talking about it. What does he say? Running waters out of thine own well, your own well, your own source of nourishment. And again, he's talking still about intimacy. Notice what he says in verse 16. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of waters in the streets. Do you think Solomon was of the opinion that when a husband and wife come together, they have a couple of kids, that's the only purpose of that in their marriage? No. Let your fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of waters in the streets. Have as much passion with your spouse as you can. So says the word of God. Let them only be with thine own and not strangers with thee. In other words, you turn to your spouse for that. Let her be to, the, to thee as the loving hind and the pleasant roe. Honey, I just love you like a deer. Why will thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman? Have as much intimacy as you can with your spouse. It's one of the secrets to a happy marriage. On the flip side, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, to prevent fornication, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. Listen, the wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband the husband, likewise, hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. What is that talking about? If I deny my spouse physical affection, I am defrauding her. I'm stealing from her. Wives, if you deny your husband... Physical affection, you are defrauding him. You are stealing from him. The only reason that God's word gives to abstain from that is to devote yourself to Christ and to fast and to pray. And so intimacy with your spouse is one way you prevent that. Number three, Proverbs chapter 4 Guarding your heart. Proverbs chapter 4 uses the word keep. But as we discussed last week, as we talked about wives being keepers at home, what does that word keep mean? It means guard. A prison keeper. A jail keeper. When Solomon wrote to guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life are the issues of life. He says to keep your heart with diligence. Everything else you do in this world is a byproduct. It stems from, it springs from your heart. Out of it are the issues of life. If you control your heart, if you control what you think, what you allow yourself to feel emotionally, then you're far less likely to have an affair. You're far less likely to sin, to commit fornication. Your marriage is far less likely to be destroyed. We guard our hearts. For some, it might be physical attraction. For some, it might be emotional. There is such a thing as an emotional affair, and you need to be aware of that. All right, let's move on. Number two, killers of marriage, money. Scripture says as much about money as it does just about any other earthly subject. Jesus uses money as examples and parables. Proverbs speaks a lot about money. 
And the reason Scripture speaks so much about it is because money is a tool that we must use in our society. You often hear that money is the root of all evil, and that's a misquotation of a passage of Scripture. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil. Covetousness. Greed. Because of that, it's a source of many of our problems being a tool that we use. It's a necessary tool in this world. Undisciplined use of money places undue stress on our marriages. You're going to have enough problems in this world, speaking to you young folks who may not have been married long or are one day going to be married, you're going to have enough financial stress in this world doing everything the way you ought to do it, let alone being irresponsible with your money. Because there will be economic downturns. There will be losses of jobs. There will be rising unemployment rates. Do I have to spell that out to anybody in 2020? You're going to have money problems. Unless you're, you know, what do they call them, trust fund babies? <laughs> I'm not one of those. My parents weren't those. I don't even know any of those. What is that like? Where you have independent wealth through your parents? I don't know. My father was a police officer. My mom was a preschool teacher. Not a whole lot to go around. Money is one of the greatest money fights or one of the greatest causes of tension and turmoil in marriages. People fight about money. In our home, I handle the finances because I can shrug it off and I don't care. I know that God is going to take care of us. And God has so richly taken care of us. A few years ago when... Rachel and I were talking, she says, I don't know how things like this don't cause you to worry. It just doesn't bother me. Now, you, you know that I can be fairly miserly, and so I don't spend a lot of money. Splurging is a $5 taco box. We really went to town today. Let's go to the big city and visit Walmart. I bought a $3 T-shirt, and I gave myself permission, and I feel so guilty. I don't spend a lot of money. I'm a, I'm a fairly miserly guy. But I don't let money bother me. I know that it's going to be taken care of because thus far the Lord has led me on. He's taken care of me all of my life. Why would I worry now? Undisciplined use places a lot of stress. Sometimes a family can be forsaken if the earning of money and the generating of revenue is the chief objective. And us dads, we have to fight that. One of my dearest friends in this world shares the story sometimes with me of his mother-in-law taking him aside and telling him, you're a workaholic, you need to spend more time at home with your kids. We can be workaholics. We can devote all of our time to our work as if we do a spouse, or as we should a spouse. Some tips on that, by the way, come from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, warns us against the love of money and covetousness. Paul says in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 6, "...having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. They that will be rich, those that want to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare." and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. To desire to be rich drowns us in destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But, O thou man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and meekness. The love of money is destructive. So number one is we want to deal with money. You want to mortify covetousness and greed. I don't have to have all the new stuff. I don't have to have a bunch of money. If I have food and raiment, I'm told to be what? Content. Number two, then, is to work towards being content, to be content with such things as we have. Hebrews chapter 13, 5 says those words, say those words, be content with what such things as you have, 
For he has said unto thee, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Hebrews 13, 5. Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And lastly, in the subject of money, you want to mortify covetousness and greed. You want to be content with the things that you have. The Word of God would call upon us to avoid debt at all costs. It's a lot easier to pay your bills when you have fewer bills. Because of that, we don't drive expensive cars. We drive older cars. And let me just tell you, when you buy cars with cash, you could buy some nice older cars. You could pick up a 1980s Corvette for $4,000. You can't buy a new four-wheeler for $4,000. And you can roll around like Magnum P.I. I'm living the 80s dream, baby. Turn on some, you know... 1980s music, put on some Journey and turn it up and just pretend like it's 1985 and you're the coolest guy in town. You buy things with cash, you can, you can actually have some very interesting things. I don't have to have a $40,000 car. I've never bought a car that cost half that. I don't own that much in cars now between three of them. I'll roll them till they die and we'll trade it in at the place because I feel guilty selling it to somebody. It's biblical to avoid debt. The rich ruleth over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Do you want to be the slave to the lender? I don't. Now in that day, if you couldn't pay your debts, you literally became the slave. In this day, we just have to pay it back <laughs> or it goes against our credit and then we can't borrow money again or they take things that belong to us I don't want to be the servant of the lender, so guess what I don't want to do? I don't want to borrow. I reserve that for the most extreme of cases like your mortgage because nobody enters into their marriage with $200,000 to drop on a new home. Live within our means, and we avoid debt at all costs. The next one that we want to look at, and there's so many things we could say about every one of these, substance abuse. Substances such as alcohol or drugs alter our thinking, changes our perception, it changes our personality. It amplifies, they amplify certain parts of our personality. If you know an angry man and if you get the man intoxicated, usually you have a brawler on your hands. And so many marriages have been destroyed because of substance abuse. And we can all think back on our families to the different families, family members that have been destroyed, marriages that have been destroyed because of substance abuse, whether it be drugs or alcohol. Now, I want to just say that drugs in our country are illegal. It's illegal to smoke marijuana. It's illegal to use meth. It's illegal to use cocaine. It's illegal to use heroin. And so the Christian should never do that. Why? Because it's illegal and we are to be subject to principalities and powers. I know we don't like to hear that, but it's the Word of God. But in mind to be subject to magistrates, to obey magistrates, to be subject to principalities and powers. And so since the powers that be say, you don't do that, guess what we don't do? We don't do that. Alcohol is legal and at times even permitted in Scripture. Jesus turned water into what at a wedding? It wasn't Welch's. It wasn't Welch's. It was wine. Turned it into wine. The Greek word there is the word for Wine. The master of ceremonies said people usually save the good stuff for after people are well drunken, which doesn't happen on Welch's. You can I, you go home and buy three gallons of it and drink it till midnight and tell me what happened. Don't do that. <laughs> he turned it to wine. So there are reasonable biblical usage for wine. We use what in communion? Wine. And that's biblical. But the abuse of alcohol is destructive. If you are an addictive person by nature, don't come in the room with it, unless we're having communion. Avoid it like the plague. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. I can tell you story after story after story of friends and people that I knew in high school and college that were mocked by wine. They did things they would never do 
they experienced things they'd never want to experience because they, well, they played with fire and they got burned. Two more of these on the list that I wanted to talk about today, and we have just a couple of minutes. And so we're going to save these for next time because we don't want to keep you another 30 or 40 minutes. I wouldn't mind, but you probably would. So we'll conclude today simply by saying, let us take heed, let us build our house on the rock foundation of the Word of God, not on the sands of the way that this world tells us. Let us beware, let us understand that there are killers of marriage in our world today, that Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Pray for us next week as we prepare to speak to you about two more of these killers of marriage. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for warning us of destructive things in your word. Lord, I know that we would rather spend our time reading things and studying things that are positive and uplifting, but how important are the signs of warning? We see a sign that says, beware of dog, bridge out, and we know that there's danger ahead. Lord, we were walking through a world that is full of landmines, and you've given us signs in this word that say, Danger, beware, that we can read and we can back up and we can go another way, that we be not destroyed. Father, I pray for everyone here who has heard this message and heard these words, that this would be impactful to them. Father, we pray that you would help us to mortify selfishness in our life. We know, Lord, that we are naturally selfish people. We know, Father, that comes from Adam, and you've given us the strength to mortify it. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Help us, Father, to mortify lust for people other than our spouse. Help us to love our spouses, to enjoy intimacy with them, to your glory. Help us, Father, to mortify covetousness and greed, for we know that the love of money is the root of all evil. Help us to be content Father, keep us from substance abuse, keep us from addictions, keep us from drug abuse. Deliver us from all of these things. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Let us be aware of the danger that they present. Help us, Father, to have marriages that not only stand the test of time, but bring you glory and honor and benefit to us until death do us part. Forgive us of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.